0: All right, let me I'll just stand up for a moment to welcome you all here. This is the second uh, seminar of the Perfum Michaelmas Term Series. It's also the birthday of the Financial Market Programme because it was signed on the 17th of October. So happy birthday to the programme. Welcome to Klaus Reigling. Um You've probably seen from the poster his Curriculum Vitae, but just for any who haven't, before he became Managing Director of the ESM and CEO of its predecessor, the EFSF. Um, Klaus had held a number of public positions and uh, he was at the European Commission as Director General of Economics and Finance. Um, He was in Germany um, uh, as a very senior level in the Ministry of Finance, where I think it's fair to say he was one of, I was going to say the midwives, perhaps I should say the godfathers of the Euro project. And um, he was, before that, he was at the International Monetary Fund. And there was a time 25 years ago, in 1988, when, when Klaus and Russell King and I were traveling around Europe to try to discuss um, balance of payments imbalances and the role of financial markets. I recall this very well. And I went back and looked at this document. I found the issues haven't changed very much. And certainly. The market participants haven't changed very much, and I'm not sure the governments have changed very much, but so he has a, a long track record. He also though was in the private sector. He was um, a managing director of the hedge fund, More Capital, and this may account for the fact that his first bond issue at the ESM was, I think, three times oversubscribed. And it is the birthday also of the, um, of the ESM, more or less two weeks, October, two weeks ago, October, yeah. two weeks ago. So welcome, and Klaus. It's your second time here. You were here three years ago. Just as Ireland was beginning to look for your help at the time, um, in fact, we thought we might not have a seminar due to this, um, it's a real pleasure to have you again. Um, Russell Kincaid um, I- uh, spent his career at the International Monetary Fund, and he recently left the fund and came here for a year to Oxford. He was um, he worked on Asia, the Middle East, and on Europe, being uh, in charge of the division handling Germany. being mission chief for Bulgaria, and later was deputy <coughs> director of policy at the IMF and then was the director for risk management and audit of the IMF. Um, so it's, it's, it's Klaus's job is to solve crises and Russell's job was to warn the fund not to lend to countries that could anyway pose difficulties, I think. So this was a, a fine, fine prospect. Now just a quick word of housekeeping. Um, as you can see, this is being podcast. And that means that you can't, unfortunately, ask questions during Klaus's presentation. You can't interrupt him. You really shouldn't heckle him, um, because um, you, have not, you are not consenting adults. You have not signed the consent form for the podcast. The podcast will be cut after, Ru- after Klaus has spoken, and that means that Russell's, uh, Russell's questions and Klaus's answers will be under the Chatham House rule, and the discussion will be under the Chatham House rule. So that's when everybody can let their hair down, so to speak. Can I just also say, um, it is not yet confirmed whether there will be a seminar next Monday evening, because there is a remaining question mark when Paul Tucker will fly to spend his year at Harvard. And judging by this morning, the the flight had not yet been settled. And so we will send round a notice in due course saying whether there will be a seminar next Monday. If not, then we will resume in two weeks time with a seminar With a speaker from the European Central Bank. With that, I'll hand over to Klaus. Okay,
1: thank you very much. Max, first congratulations on the first anniversary of the programme. Nice to be here and nice to be here a second time. Thanks for inviting me. Particularly nice to sit here with Max and Russell because as Max said, we have a a common past, he was too modest of course. He was the boss when I arrived in that division in 1985. Russell was his deputy, um, so I had to catch up. Um, a few years later then Russell moved in the IMF and I could take his position. So. But was, we had very three and a half very intensive years together. People forget that those were the days of the Latin American debt crisis. Um, and um, we had to work on that, that was the task of the division and sometimes it's useful to think back of what happened then, what were the solutions. It's probably a sign that we are getting too old that um, many of the actors today don't remember. Uh, Maybe I shouldn't have said it because it's online, so... um. (laughs) 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 Okay, um, let me go through my presentation and I'm sorry that Max um, didn't allow you to interrupt me, but you can do it all afterwards. Um, (coughs) Yes, and I hope everybody can Read this also in the back. So, um, obviously, policy makers today who deal with the European crisis and European issues have two two issues to deal with. Um, They have to stabilize and continue to stabilize the current um, situation, and they have to think about the future how to complete monetary union, how to make sure. That either there is no crisis, although one should be very careful with such a statement. We know there will always be a crisis somewhere. It's part of our economic system, but that the crisis doesn't happen too quickly the next one and it's not too serious. Um, We are working on that. I know the impression around the world, inside Europe and outside Europe, I'm sure also in Oxford, is that. We have not done a very good job that things are very much ad-hoc, no comprehensive strategy, often acting too late. I think that is the predominant um, perception. Some of that is true, but still um, looking backwards what happened the last um, three years or so, um, one can discover that there is a consistent comprehensive strategy. And I admit it's not easy to discover it, but that's why I want to guide you through that a little bit. Um, several things have contributed to the current stabilization in the euro area. It's not only monetary policy, as the Financial Times writes every week. It's not only OMT, although it has that played a very important role to switch expectations and markets in August last year. Um, but for me, there are four interrelated um, developments, four elements of our crisis strategy where we have made progress in parallel each four of them that explains quite easily why the situation today is better than eighteen months ago and you find them here on the screen the, um, no this was, I'm jumping ahead of to the next slide I think this was just still talking about the origins of the crisis but I think I, I will skip that and I will go to these um, elements of our strategy, um, four elements, first and for me the most important one is what's happening at the national level in the periphery in the countries that had a problem. And I will show you in a moment um, that um, there is substantial adjustment. I think it's widely accepted now also in markets but it's good to look at some of the facts. For me that is a key thing because only if the countries that need to adjust actually do adjust. Um, we will be able to see an end of the crisis. But the second point is also important, um, better economic policy coordination in the area. As you know um, many academics, particularly in this country in the US, have often said monetary union cannot work because there's a centralized monetary policy and you do fiscal policy and structural reform in a decentralized way at the national level doesn't work and some Martin Feldstein, Kruppmann, others still say it doesn't work. I think it can work, but of course it can only work if there are rules to coordinate policies. And these rules were not good enough in the past. Um, We have changed that. I will also explain that a little bit. The third point is that we closed institutional gaps in the initial design of monetary union. When monetary union was prepared um, in the late um, 80s and then throughout the 90s, there was no plan to have um, financial backstops. Um, we thought, and I include myself, that it wouldn't be needed, that um, the, that capital flows inside AMU would always even out. Um, we did not foresee a crisis like the one we have seen in the last four years. Um, so that was a mistake. We have closed that institutional gap. We created the EFSF and ESM as financial backstops. And here I would also add, um, All the things the ECB does today, which were also not foreseen in the initial initial design of monetary union, like OMT. Um, So that's the institutional side. And then the last point, and I will spend a bit more time on that, given the focus of the the seminar program, is what's happening to the banking system. Because that's really the fourth element in this um, strategy, which I therefore call a comprehensive strategy to stabilize the euro area. Um, First one, national adjustment. Second, better policy policy coordination. Third, closing institutional gaps. And fourth is to strengthen the banking system. Um, We know economies don't work well when the banking system doesn't work. The crisis has led to a renationalization of European banking market, a fragmentation with um, high cost for the countries in southern Europe and the periphery. Um, We are trying to fix that um, by moving to the banking union. So that's the fourth point in in the strategy. And for me that all together explains quite well why the situation in Europe, in the euro area is better today than um, last time I came here um, three years ago. So let's look at each of these four points a bit and in particular um, at the last one um, at the banking union. So first point Adjustment at the national level, here you see um, um, what's happening on the fiscal side. Fiscal deficits are coming down rapidly, um, there's always a debate whether it's too fast too slow, but, but the direction is very clear. I also don't think it's particularly fruitful to, to talk much about fiscal multipliers when you have a fiscal deficit of 15.6% like in Greece in 2009. Um, whatever the fiscal multipliers are, one has to act when that happens um, and you have to bring it into line with um, financing possibilities. Every EU country has a plan how to bring down the deficits. We look at now it's a structural effort so we, we take out the, um, um, the problems that come from the cycle so the nominal targets can be postponed but in structured terms the plans are being followed. Overall, it's actually quite good. You see on the right-hand side that in the aggregate, the deficit of the euro area is only about half what you see in the UK, US and Japan. So it's working, it's moving in the right direction. Competitiveness, the other big macroeconomic problem that you saw in the euro area accumulating during the first decade of monetary union. There we also see significant progress. You see on the left-hand side how the unit labor costs um, developed in southern European countries and an island. They moved up strongly um, since 2000 or 1999, the beginning of the monetary union. The bottom line, the thick blue line, that's Germany just as a reference point. And so you could also say northern Europe. And you see that in the peak Mm -hmm. in, in in 1998, the gap between southern Europe and Northern Europe was 45%. That was the result cumulative um, of the first um, decade of monetary union. That was not sustainable. Um, you saw the result um, when you look at the right hand side, the current account deficits. Um, they reached um, in some cases um, 10, 15, 18% of GDP. Again, not sustainable, had to change. Interesting, the turning point came in the first quarter of 2008 in some countries. um, So well before Lehman. And that was the result of um, work from the bodies that are in charge of supervising, monitoring the economies, the commission, um, a bit also IMF and OECD. Um, Max was at that time with me in the commission and we saw this happening of course, we were not totally blind. But it was the time of the great moderation. um, And some of our famous colleagues thought cycles had disappeared from economics and all these things. So it's all a bit weird today, but uh, those were the days. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So the turning point was there already in 2008. And since then, there's a lot of progress. Not in Italy, by the way, which is the yellow line. Mm -hmm. But clearly, the countries that borrow from EFSF and ESM are making progress. Conditionality works. People who come from the IMF, and there are several here, know that very well, conditionality works. Um, um, It takes a while to see it, but it always works. Um, And you see it certainly now in Greece, Portugal, Ireland, Spain, and we will also see it in Cyprus soon. Very clearly here on the competitiveness side, improving current account deficits disappearing. Um, Several countries are back in surplus. Also for cyclical reasons, obviously, um, because imports are collapsing, but exports are also growing. Like Spain, exports are up 11% year over year. So these economies are rebalancing. So we see a rebalancing inside each country towards the external side, and that's the only way. And we see a rebalancing inside monetary union, so the problems are disappearing slowly. Also, these programs in, in Greece, Portugal Island, um, have not only the macroeconomic component of cutting deficits, um, they have very strong structural components, um, very painful also for people who have to give up privileges. And it's always easy to say people should give up privileges and, and um, rents should, should not be there. But if you talk to a, a Greek truck driver who bought the license to be allowed to drive a truck two years ago for 200,000 euro because the number of licenses for truck driving in Greece had not increased for 20 years. Um, That's why it's very expensive for the economy. It was cheaper to fly something from Frankfurt to Athens than trucking it from Thessaloniki to Athens. So the truck driver who bought this was in the old system, he put all his savings in there. And if you tell that truck driver today, no, no, there are no more licenses. The guy will not be happy. So, structural reforms are painful, just like um, fiscal adjustment is painful when it means that civil servants and pensioners have to give up 30 or 40 percent of their income. But it is working. It's painful, but it's working. So, that was the first part. Uh, markets, of course, have discovered it with a time lag, as always. Um, markets um, um, had a time lag before they discovered the problems. They also Um, There was a time lag before they saw the progress. Now they see it fully. (coughs) Interest rates on 10-year government bonds for Ireland and Spain um, are only half what they were 18 months ago. Also, um, Portugal, Ireland, Spain have been able, the last few months, to issue 10-year government bonds again. (coughs) They were not able to do that for the preceding two years. So um, things are um, getting a lot better not yet in Greece, that's the most difficult case, and Cyprus (coughs) is the most recent case, but in the other cases there is a lot of progress. So let's move to the second part of the strategy, better policy coordination. And that's a key point also in the long run, um, because in the past we focused on fiscal coordination. Not totally wrong, because in a monetary union I think the scope and the potential for Spillovers coming from the fiscal side are very large, um, and therefore it was important to focus on that. But first, um, not every country followed strictly the rules, including big countries like Germany and France in 2003 when they ignored um, the rules. And secondly, it was too narrow, too narrowly defined. So, what has happened now um, during the last two years is that the rules of the <coughs> stability pact have been. <coughs> tightened, they have been made stricter, they have also been put into different <coughs> formats and I will not go into all the details because um, that would take too much time, um, but they are clearly stricter, there's much less room for political interference and there it's important to realise that the modalities for voting um, on, in this process of um, the Civil and Growth Pact, the voting modalities were turned around. <coughs> Um, in the past, like always in the EU a proposal from the Commission needs a qualified majority in the Council to become European law in the future, for the different steps of the stability pact it 's sufficient um, that or for a European Commission proposal to become law, um, that will happen unless there's a qualified majority in the Council against the commission proposal and that 's a complete change and strengthens the role of the, pos- of the commission very much, uh, makes the commission much stronger and most of the time the commission has been on the right side um, when we think about um, their proposals in the context of the Stability and Growth Pact and, and fiscal adjustment. So much tighter rules, less room for interference, but also these fiscal rules are now in the context of the fiscal compact imp- introduced into national legislation which means that if a country in the future were to violate the European rule on, on budgetary um, conduct the country would also violate its own national legislation. So it's another <coughs> hurdle in order to prevent that. Um, there's earlier coordination with the European com- semester where countries notify the Commission in the first half of the year about their intentions. Um, Then there is an analysis in the Commission, um, a discussion in the Council and the country gets recommendations from its partners, um, complaints maybe, but the country, the National Parliament remains in charge of taking the final decision um, on the national budgets, so they remain responsible, um, but they take the decision knowing what the partners think about um, what they are about to vote on. And now we have since um, this month uh, the two-pack in place where um, the Commission um, checks before a national parliament takes a final decision on a budget whether this budget is really consistent with all the rules that have been adopted the last two or three years. And you will read a lot more about that in the newspapers the next few days because um, the process is unfolding. The first time, we will see how it goes. I'm sure some governments will not like um, it when the Commission speaks out. I hope and I expect the Commission will speak out. It's their role. They were given this task. Um, So a lot is happening in this fiscal side. Then in addition, also important, as one of the lessons from the crisis, surveillance has been broadened significantly. There's now something called um, um, the excessive um, imbalance procedure, sounds terrible um, for most people, um, but it describes pretty well what it's meant, um, avoiding excessive imbalances. There will always be imbalances in the monetary union. Um, you also have imbalances between the regions in the US, or the, not to speak of regions in China, um, but they shouldn't become excessive. Um, um, and in this procedure, now very systematically, the Commission, the ECB, the ministers, the finance ministers, will look at um, other areas beyond fiscal um, that can also lead to problems if they get out of control, like credit bubbles, real estate bubbles, um, excessive deviations in competitiveness, um, current account imbalances, and all these things. Um, So in a much more systematic way, all these broader macroeconomic variables are being monitored then the Commission, if necessary, can make recommendations to the Council. So the Council has to vote on that, um, give it to the country concerned, <coughs> and if repeatedly a, a country um, does not follow the recommendations, there can be sanctions. So let me stop here because one can talk forever about these, um, this improved framework, but it is isn't the important second element of the um, response to the euro, euro crisis. The third one, as I already mentioned is closing institutional gaps. Um, There was nothing like the EFSF and the ESM when the crisis broke. What we have done now, we have imported um, the um, approaches that the IMF has used successfully the last few decades globally into Europe. Um, Many people don't realize that, particularly in my own country, when I talk about this, they think this is completely new, and we are giving money away. um, forget that the IMF has done very similar operations um, in, in all continents during the last 40-50 um, years, quite successfully never lost money. Um, so we ha- have imported many of those approaches. So the main task of EFSF-ESM is to finance macroeconomic adjustment programs. We can also, like the IMF, support precautionary arrangements. We haven't done it yet, but we have the instruments. Then we can do things that the IMF cannot do. Um, We can do indirect bank recapitalization. The IMF cannot um, support specific sectors of the economy. We could also intervene in the primary and secondary bond market. Um, We haven't done it, but we have the instrument. And it's particularly important in the context of the ECB's OMT. the instruments are available, so it goes beyond what the IMF can do, but the core business and most of our programs are very much like IMF programs, where we provide the financing. The conditionality, as you know, is negotiated by the Troika, which includes the European Commission, ECB and IMF. Where we are also different from the IMF, and that's why we are clearly not a European Monetary Fund, is that we have to organize the money first before we can lend the IMF, when when they agree on a program they push a button and get the money automatically from the member states So they have a very quiet job compared to the EFSF and the ESM We have to go to the market, um, raise the funds That's why Max talked about um, bond issues which have been quite successful so far And on the next um, slide you can see what EFSF and ESM have done um, During the last two and a half years um, We have a Lending capacity together of 700 billion euro. Um, We have used so far um, less than a third of that. We have committed 236 billion of which 200 and it changes every week, so I have to look at the numbers. We have dispersed 215 billion euro. All this happened during the last two and a half years. So 250 billion, 15 billion, that's about 280 billion US dollars. The IMF has total claims outstanding of about 140 billion US dollars, so only half of what we have done in two and a half years. So much for the criticism that we often heard in Europe that we are not doing enough. Um, I think we have done quite a bit. The good news is also that 450 billion euros uncommitted. Uh, Most of the firepower of the ESM is not committed, is available. Um, for future cases, hopefully they don't come, but it's good to have this available in case of need. Um, So the 215 billion that we have lent went to five countries, Ireland, Portugal and Greece, um, are financed by the EFSF, which was the first temporary institution, which will take no new programs, but they continue to finance um, these three countries, and there's still about 15 billion in the pipeline. Why the ESM is doing all the new programs that started with the Spanish bank restructuring and um, the Cypriot program earlier this year. That also means that both institutions, um, I have to say that for the market people, both institutions will be in the market for the next 25 years because we have EFSF bonds outstanding with 25 maturity. That's the longest one, all the others are shorter and the EFSF will exist as long as it takes um, to unwind all these operations. Then EFSF will close down. ESM is the permanent institution. You may ask why are there two institutions? The reason is that the EFSF had to be put together very quickly. There was nothing. We had to start from scratch. And therefore one had to use a strange legal vehicle. It uh, operates under Luxembourg law. ESM, as a real international financial institution, operates under international law, but to do that it takes some time to um, create international law or have it ratified in all member states. Um, took a while. That's why we have these two institutions, but the Division of Labor is now very clear. EFSF continues to finance the first three countries, Ireland, Greece, and Portugal. <coughs> ESM does everything else. Um, the last point, looking at these institutional innovations that happened the last few years, is um, the role of the ECB, particular OMT, um, which as I already said, was very important to switch the perception in the market last August. It's important to have it. I think it's a very efficient use and of the two institutions and the efficient cooperation between us at the ESM and the ECB because it provides, on the one hand, the conditionality that the ECB cannot provide. We can provide it with ESM programs. And we can combine it then with the unlimited firepower that only a central bank can provide. Um, Our firepower is not unlimited. Um, So it's a very efficient combination. We know exactly what to do. Uh, I signed uh, an MOU with, with Mario Draghi, so if it's activated, we know who does what. It is available, it can be activated quickly. Um, but ideally it will never be used. Um, Like um, our remaining firepower, best is to have it there, people know about it and and not use it. So that was the third element of the comprehensive crisis response, national adjustment, better policy coordination, the new institutions. Let's move to the fourth element of the crisis response. strengthening the and helping the banking sector. And here, of course, dramatic things happened during the last um, four or five years. This may be a bit dense, but on the left-hand side, you see how in the earlier years, in 2006, 2007, it's a light blue, um, private flows financed all the deficits in, in the countries of the periphery. Um, Those were the easy days before the crisis. Um, Financial flows, no problem. Financing current account deficits, fiscal deficits, um, deficits of the private sector, um, all that was financed by this light blue. Then starting in 2008 with um, the global crisis, although I, I prefer to say it was really the moment when the homemade problems of AMU, which had accumulated the first decade of AMU, came together with the global financial crisis. It's this combination that made it so difficult. Mm. So when that happened in 2008 with Lehman, you see the blue block. It's still positive. Um, there was still private flow to these um, countries. Um, but it was already s- um, supported by um, eurosystem flows, which includes um, the target balances. So more and more money was channeled through, through the ESCB. Then the blue shrank in 2009 and became negative in 2010, 11, and 12. So withdrawal of private capital from these economies, substituted, and there was no other way to substitute it in the short run, by public money, IMF (coughs) money, EFSF, ESM, and ECB money. Um, And that took over, otherwise there would have been a total collapse. Um, Unfortunately, we only have numbers um, at the moment up to the third quarter of last year. And it will be very interesting to see the 2013 number when they come out. Um, I think it will indicate a slow normalization of the situation. Um, And then we will move back to normal. Although my view is a new normal that will not look like 2006 and 2007. Um, Those flows were too big. They finance the huge current account deficits in these countries. The deficits will be much smaller in the future. They should be smaller. Um, so, the normalization will mean that there's no net new inflow coming from ESM and IMF. Target balances are dropping anyway now. There will be a healthy, sustainable amount of private capital flow again. That will be the new normal. <coughs> the right hand side shows that the banking sector overall is not back to normal yet. It shows um, the use of the ECB deposits facility. We have, as you probably know, the situation that banks borrow a lot from the ECB, and then they put, at the end of the day, a lot of money back to the ECB. Um, the balance of that was hugely, um, was huge, up to 900 billion euro um, in October 2011, um, until the summer of last year. Since August last year, it's dropping. But it's still around 350 billion euro. Um, so that's an indication that the situation is better, much better than a year ago, but it's far from normal um, because there should really be no net balance. Um, um, it should go back um, at least where it was in January 2008 when it was 200 billion and maybe even less than that. So there's a problem. Another way to look at it is that the interest rates for private borrowers in the periphery are substantially higher than in northern European countries. These are ECB interest rates, um, um, unknowns to non-financial private sector borrowers. And you see a difference of three, four percentage points, um, which is very painful, of course, for these countries, because these are the countries that are going through adjustment anyway. They have to improve competitiveness, given that they cannot move the exchange rate. They do it by cutting wages, cutting income. Um, More in Greece and Ireland than in Italy and Spain, but it's happening everywhere. Um, That's painful. If now certain corporates um, have capital costs that are significantly higher than the capital costs that their competitors have a few kilometers or miles further north because there's a border in between, then what can they squeeze? They have to squeeze again labor cost on top of what they are already doing. So that's not nice for the people who want to earn a decent living, but it's also bad for domestic consumption and and domestic demand. So um, there's a risk that GDP drops further. So this is not healthy. Um, There can be some differentiation, but it should be um, based on creditworthiness, not on geographical um, location. So these When you look at these two charts that describe the problem, um, that's more or less what politicians also discovered the summer of last year. The first two and a half years of the crisis, they had focused on the fiscal side, on debt levels, on competitiveness and current accounts. And they saw the summer of last year that all these things were moving the right direction. It was not over, but it was moving the right direction. While here on the banking side, financial markets and, looking at interest rates, looking at how much money was channeled through the ESCB, um, the problem was getting worse. And that's why, to the surprise of some, in the summer of last year, all of a sudden the word Banking Union appeared in the communiques of Euro Area Summits. Um, I can tell you it was not so easy to explain all this to top politicians because normally this is beyond their radar screen. Um, but they realized that there was a problem and that's why um, Banking Union is now on the top of the agenda. It will again be there at the end of the week when there's the next summit in Brussels. And Banking Union has three objectives. First, to limit this fragmentation um, in the financial markets to the minimum possible. Second, to break the sovereign um, bank link. And third, to protect taxpayers. So, what has happened in this area? Um, We have already, um, for some time, established additional new institutions for um, super, for financial market supervision for banks, insurance companies, um, securities markets. We also created the ESRB, European Systemic Risk Board, which is really an interesting. Institution not well known in the broad public, but you probably all know about it. Other countries also drew the conclusion from the crisis that macro potential risks had been ignored or not, not um, monitored appropriately. Max and, and Russell have written a paper on that. Um, so now people have woken up. Um, they know that this is potentially very important to prevent a crisis. ESRB does it in the Euro area. And I think for the euro area, it's even more important <coughs> than for a country. The USS created a similar body in the UK. But in a monetary union, where monetary policy is not available in any country-specific way, um, supervisory tools can be particularly helpful because supervisory tools in a monetary union remain available at the national level. They can be used to address to address national problems. For example, five years ago, when the Irish real estate bubble was getting bigger and bigger, the Irish supervisors could have intervened. They had the instrument. They could have said the loan value ratio um, <coughs> should be no higher, no more than 80, typically in Ireland like in this country, in the US, um, banks financed 110% of um, the purchase price of a, of a real estate project. So the Irish supervisors could have used that and could have stopped that. They didn't do it, but there was also nobody in Europe who told them to do that. And that's my expectation that the ESRB will will play that role. We also, of course, um, Europe is part of what's happening globally and Basel, um, the G20, so Basel III is being implemented. Um, um, in preparation of that, banks are increasing their capital. Last year alone, European banks increased their capital by 250 billion euro. Um, And doing that and some deleveraging, the core tier one capital ratios all moved to 9% or higher. So a lot of progress with the European banks. Um, And we continue with our regulatory framework um, um, in the European Union on the different um, capital adequacy directives. We are discussing BRRD, which stands, but I get to that on the next slide. I explain a bit what all these, epri- these acronyms mean. Um, and we are moving towards banking union, which has um, these different components. Um, banking union, as you know, the first part has been agreed. The single supervisory mechanism, SSM, will be taken over by the ECB and will be operational in about a year. The single resolution mechanism is still under debate, um, under fierce debate actually, Um, different views on this. Not surprising when you have 17 countries and a commission, um, there are different views. Um, I'm sure there will be a solution found in the next few months, but I cannot tell you tonight which one. Um, Direct bank recap instrument is something that's directly linked to my institutions, because here's the idea that on top of the instruments we already have at the ESM, I showed them on the earlier slide, we would also be authorised to give capital equity directly to just one bank, um, which would be, in addition to our normal work, I I have to recruit different staff who is able to supervise and restructure banks, sit on the board of a bank. Um, But this is um, broadly agreed by the euro area finance ministers. Um, However, we know that in some countries it's hotly disputed, um, particularly in Germany. It may well become subject of the coalition agreement between the two parties that may form the grand coalition in Germany and we have to see what happens there. But it is one of the elements of the of the banking union. Um, As you know, as part of the banking union and the ECB taking over as Single supervisor, there will be asset quality reviews. Um, In spring of next year, there will be stress tests from EBA. At the end of that, one has to know if there are gaps, who will fill those gaps. There's again a fierce debate ongoing how to do that. Um, Some people think that the ESM should be authorised to act as a financial backstop in this context. Not only through direct bank recapitalization, but also as a backstop to the single resolution uh, mechanism and single resolution fund. Um, All that under debate, mm, not over, Um, we will see where it goes. What we could already do today is use the instruments that we applied in the case of Spain to um, help the bank restructuring by giving a loan to the government where the money is clearly earmarked for the banking sector. That doesn't cut the link between sovereign and banks, um, but it provides the financing. Um, So this is available um, and could be used again. So that's where we are on banking union. I'm sure you will have many questions. I better stop here. But let me repeat, um, apart from banking union where we are all working very actively right now, (laughs) my main message is there are these four good reasons why the euro area is stabilizing why the market situation has stabilized. It's not by coincidence. It's not because markets now focus on US debt ceilings and emerging market exchange rates. Um, We have made good progress. At the national level, the adjustment is really there. It's not over. It must continue, but it's really there. The policy coordination is much stricter and much broader today than ever before. Thirdly, we have new institutions that are available um, um, to react to a crisis. And we are working fourthly on the banking union, which I think is an important um, part and complement to economic and monetary union. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much.